today? Amen. Amen, says Levon. Amen. Well, you guys, I made a fortuitous discovery just now. This is a picture of the greatest family in the world in my Bible. Unfortunately, my wife's not in this picture, but it's me and my brothers when we were very small, which didn't last very long. We became very large very quickly. But uh, yeah, you can't see it, but there's little me with my ginger hair looking good. All right. Well, you know what? Let's actually say a prayer before we get started. Dear Lord, thank you for church, that we can come and sing your praises and, and lift up your name and exalt your name, Lord. I pray that your presence would be tangible to us here today and that your presence would be with me as I speak about your presence, Lord. We thank you so much that you have just blessed us in so many ways. I pray for the sake of all those here that the Packers would win, even though normally that is not how I pray, Lord. Uh, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Amen. You guys are welcome. That's probably the only time I've ever or will ever do that. So, as you all know, I am, I am a Vikings fan. Okay, so uh, today we're going to be talking about, you know, I'm, I'm going through the book of John. We've talked about that, and it is the best gospel. Eli told me that his gospel was the best, but I disagree. John is the best. It's not actually, but it's awesome. And you know, last time we spoke about the book of John, we talked about how, you know, it, right in the opening words, he makes a connection with Genesis. You know, he says, Phil, could you go to the next slide? We'll see this. He says, in the beginning was the word. And Genesis 1 starts out with, in the beginning, God. And the book of John has a lot of themes. Most of them are laid out in the very first chapter. So theoretically, I could preach just from the first chapter, and you would understand the book of John pretty well. I don't want to do that, though, because there's so much richness in the way that he tells the story. So this will be the last sermon from the first chapter of John. But there's another theme. Could you go to the next slide, Phil? That comes up right after this idea of a new genesis or a new creation, which is God's presence in Christ. And, you know, our theme for this year is strength in Christ. And I believe that God's presence is one of the fundamental things that the book of Genesis and the entire Bible is actually about. And so I want to show you guys today how God's presence brings us strength and peace in Christ. Amen. Amen? So we're actually going to be looking at a lot of Scripture. So I hope you guys can bear with me as I, you know, go through Genesis and also parts of Exodus all the way through the Old Testament to the book of John. Amen. But, uh, you know, I want to talk about this from a personal experience standpoint. I recently went on a spiritual retreat and, you know, Joel's big on that, so I'm like, all right, I'll do it, Joel. So this is my second one I've ever done. It was three days, and I went up to New Auburn at the Arrowhead Bible Camp, and I had this room. It's actually a really nice room, and it was free. It was cool. And I just stayed there, and the first day when I got there, I had all these plans, like, all right, I'm going to read, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And I ended up just sitting there from about 10 o'clock to 10 o'clock that night. I basically did nothing. <laughs> it was really bizarre, because... Here I am, I'm sitting there, and then at one point I laid down, and I did fall asleep, but I don't know for how long. I lost all sense of time until about 10 o'clock that night. I didn't even know what time it was the whole day. And so there I am, I'm laying there, and I sleep, and then I wake up, and all I'm doing is thinking, and I don't even remember what about. Just thinking. You know, you ever have so many thoughts that you can't even keep track of them, and they're just all over the place? I think that's actually kind of where I live my life. I just have a lot of thoughts, 
was telling Ivy some of my sermon ideas this morning, and she was like, yeah, you're doing a lot of tangents right now. And I was like, okay, yeah, I have too many thoughts. <laughs> and I'm just thinking way too much. And you can feel like, like a whirlwind, right? There's just, you know, you try to go to sleep and you can't because you're just thinking. I do that all the time. And you just have all these thoughts swirling around in your head, and there's no stillness. And so for that first day, I just sat there, and I just thought my thoughts. I don't know what they were. I just thought them. And eventually, kind of like how you know, the wind blows about leaves, they just settled down. And I stopped thinking so much. Matter of fact, I think I got to a point where I wasn't thinking at all, which was really weird in and of itself. I was just sitting there quietly. And I began to realize how much my own thoughts and fears and all these things just dominated my life. And then the next day, I spent a lot of time in God's Word, and I read through the book of Genesis and John and a few other things, and really considered what God was trying to say to me. And I, I had this experience of God's presence that was really powerful, but it took me kind of being still and not thinking all my own thoughts all the time. And so I want to share with you guys a lot of what I learned reading in the book of Genesis, okay? So let's, can you do the next slide, Phil? So I'm actually, I'm going to talk about Genesis 1 first before we read this. Genesis 1, right, it starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you have six days in which God creates things. And each day is, is sort of a different, you know, time and space and fruit and vegetables. And six, day six is people. And people are made in his image. Now, in the ancient world, if you had a temple... Right? Actually, we, I could give you a famous example. The statue of Zeus. Okay, It was this huge golden statue. It was meant to be the representation of his presence in his temple. So on day six, God makes his image. And a lot of times we think about that and we think of our attributes. Right, We're like God. We can think, we can choose, we can do things that only God could do. But the thing is, Satan can also do those things. You know, the angels can also do those things. We know that from the scripture. So that's not what that's really about. And then there's day seven. And scholars don't really know what to do with day seven a lot of times. They wrestle with what it actually means. You know, day seven, God rests. It says he rested. And that points to God's giving of the Sabbath to Israel. But is that really all that that is about? It's hard to say. But there is some clues in the text and there's a lot of scholars who believe, and I think they're right, that God was creating his temple. The world is God's temple. You know, the Bible says that the heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. That's where God sits. That's where he rests, right? And so God has created this temple and he's put mankind as his image, sort of like a statue, but not a statue, right? We're alive, unlike a statue, in his temple. And so God rests in his temple. And we'll look in Exodus how that kind of theme comes out more fully and it becomes more obvious what that means. But God's presence is at the center of that story. God creates everything and then he resides in it. And we see in the Garden of Eden, God is with them, right, in the garden. His presence is there in some unique way that I don't think we can fully understand sitting where we are. But this is what happens, right? God is there and then it all goes wrong. Because in Genesis 3... Actually, I need to turn there. Genesis 3, it says, verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So here's the Lord. He's walking in the garden. And you get the impression from the text that he does this often. It's not like he just suddenly decided he was going to take a stroll. He does this all the time. What does it mean? It means that God is present. And Adam and Eve hide for the first time. And that's why the Lord says, why are you hiding? Because they never did that before. Of course, he knows why. Obviously, he's, asking, he's, wanting, he's wanting them to be honest, right? And they are. But God, he sees what has happened, and he has to make a decision. Next slide, please. He has to make a decision about how to handle this, and this is what he does. So it says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, a couple things here. When you think about this idea of the temple and God's presence, the entrance to the temple that they built, the Israelites built, was on the east side. And there was cherubim that guarded the way. And so it's the same thing. God's presence dwells in the temple. God's presence dwelt in the garden. But God is saying, listen, Adam and Eve, because of your choice, because you decided to put yourself in the place of wisdom and make this choice for yourself and eat from the fruit, you are banished from my presence. And that was actually a good thing because we know sin cannot be in God's presence and it will destroy you. But that's what happens to them. Okay, this theme continues in the next story in Genesis. Can you go to the next slide? So Cain and Abel. We sometimes wonder what to do with this story, right? And we think it's just, well, Cain was really evil, and that's, that's the main point. And because Cain murders his brother, right? Cain and Abel both bring an offering to the Lord. And sometimes we wonder, why were they doing that? You know, we tend to think of for the forgiveness of their sins. I think that they were bringing an offering to the Lord because they wanted him to be close to them. Right? Matter of fact, in the ancient world, in the temples, what you would do is you would bring food or whatever you had to offer to the gods, right? And we know that they're not really gods, but that's what people did. They said, hey, here's my food. Why don't you come be here and eat? Because they believed that the gods needed people to provide for them, and people needed the gods to provide for them. So it was called, they call it the great symbiosis, right? You work together. You provide for me, I provide for you, this for that. And so I don't know what was going on in Cain and Abel's mind, but that, what I'm intuiting is that they may have thought something to that effect. And so God is pleased with Abel's offering. Why? I don't know. Maybe Abel's heart on the issue was different. It doesn't say. But he was not pleased with Cain's offering. And Cain becomes angry. And he kills his brother Abel. And it says, the Lord said, the Lord said, what have you done? Okay, I lost it. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground. This is the same thing God said to Adam. You're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer 
on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your presence I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So God says, you're going to be a wanderer. And Cain interprets that to mean, I will not be in your presence anymore. And that is a really bad punishment. Because that's the exact thing that Cain wanted before was God's presence. It's what he wanted. But because of his sin, he wasn't allowed to have it. And he feels that that is a great punishment. And he says, you know, he says, whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Cain is driven out from the Lord's presence even further. It's almost like Adam and Eve and their kids were, were pushed out, but they weren't completely out. And God says, okay, now Cain, you have to go even further because of this sin. Because of this sin, you have to live east of Eden. And it's interesting, over and over, you'll see in Genesis, when people do something evil, it's east of Eden. But when God calls Abram back into the land, remember we have all those curse about the land? He calls him to travel west. Anyways, I don't know what that means, but it's interesting. And you think about it, God's presence is the issue here. Cain wants to be in God's presence, but his sin has driven him away from God. You know, do you ever feel like a wanderer? Right? Like, I remember a time in my life where I just had no idea what I was doing. I was, I was looking in all these places. Matter of fact, a famous question Jesus asked in the book of John, he says, what are you looking for? I don't know what I was looking for at that time. At least at that time, I didn't know what I was looking for. But what I was looking for was the presence of God and the rest that comes from it. We're all called to that presence of God. But we seek substitute presences. We seek the presence of, of significant others, husbands, wives. We seek the presence of uh, you know, sins. And we think that will bring us rest. That will bring us peace. But it never does. You know, we're just swirling about like the leaves. And God wants us to have rest, just like he rested in his temple. But we have been driven away from his presence because of our sin. And God, from the beginning, wanted us to be close to him. And so he's working to fix that problem. But he doesn't accept human solutions. You know, Cain's solution, his attempt, it wasn't accepted. And we see the same thing in, the, in another story. We're going to skip over Noah, although I believe there is a strong connection. Noah's name means rest. But let's talk about Genesis chapter 11. This one is pretty perplexing for us a lot of times. As a matter of fact, I always assumed that I understood it, but when I read it over my retreat, I was like, actually, I can't say that I just understand this completely. That would be actually a little arrogant of me. But in, in Genesis chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 1, but what you have up there is verse 4. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated east, <laughs> hear that? East. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the whole face of the earth. Remember the curse was for Cain to be a wanderer. And that's not a good thing in people's eyes to just wander around and have no home, right? We don't feel like that's a fun place to be. 
There's a few people in our society, maybe, but in general, we want to have a home. We want to have somewhere where we can go and have rest. And they're thinking the same way, right? And that's what they want. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Okay, so what were they afraid of? Being scattered. What happens? They get scattered everywhere, even worse than before. Not just east, but the whole earth. Just go. Be gone. And we sometimes assume, this is the normal interpretation that I hear. They're building a tower because they want to be God. And I'm not so sure that that's true. Can you go to the next slide, Phil? Uh, next one. We'll go back to that. That is probably what the author is describing as a tower. And it's called a ziggurat. Okay, a ziggurat was, it wasn't a temple, but it was sort of like an elevator. And the gods would come down in the elevator, and then they would go into the temple. And so typically next door, there would be a ziggurat, and then there'd be a temple right next to it. And actually at the top of the ziggurat, there was a bed, which is interesting, and a little sanctuary where the god could sleep. Uh, and then he would come down when he wanted to go into his temple and get food and that type of thing. So the idea of rest is already inherent in the idea of a ziggurat. But the reason scholars think this was a ziggurat is because of the building materials, bitumen and bricks, which were used primarily in the construction of ziggurats. Okay, so what was the point of a ziggurat? The point of a ziggurat was actually an invitation for the God, whichever God you chose, to come be with you. It's an invitation for that God's presence to be with you. And that's what these people were trying to do. They were trying to have God come be with them. Now, what's so bad about that? Come be with us. We built you a temple. We can worship you in the temple, and you can come down our elevator. What's so bad about that? All right, well, let's go back to what it says. He says, they, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. See, their motivation was wrong. Certainly, they wanted the right thing, which was God's presence. We should all want that. We should desire that. But their motivation was for self-glorification. And God knows, because they're unified in their language and in what they're doing, that they're actually going to succeed. He says, and it's interesting, the Lord does exactly what they want in verse 5. But the Lord came down. <laughs> the Lord's like, okay, I'll come. And he goes, no, I don't like this. I actually don't want to be here anymore. I'm going back up. <laughs> right? But he says, if they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Well, what did they plan to do? To make a name for themselves. You know, in, in the ancient world, if you saw a monument like that, that huge ziggurat, which there were many, you would be impressed by the power of the people that made it. And the bigger the ziggurat, the more impressive. You know, if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, there's a scene where this... This guy was enslaved, and he comes to the city of Rome. And I actually was in Rome this summer. It's, it's an amazing, amazing place. And the Colosseum was there. And the Colosseum now, it looks kind of ugly and lame. Back then, it was all white marble, just gleaming and beautiful. And this guy says, 
I did not know that men could build such things. What happened? He was, he was impressed by the Romans. Same thing here. When you have a great ziggurat, people will be impressed by you. And what's more, when God's presence is with you, people will be impressed by you. That was their intention. And God was not pleased with that. So he scatters them. He takes away their ability to make a name for themselves by changing their language. And this is a problem, right? Think about all the languages throughout the world and how much conflict has been generated just because of this separation. So God thought that the price of allowing people to have one language but glorify themselves was worse than the cost of making division within mankind. Because when mankind is united in evil, that is so much worse than if we're divided in evil. <laughs> and so God's like, all right, I'm going to divide you. And that's what he does. You know, I think about even Ivy and I, we speak the same language, but we have so much conflict because we don't even always understand each other. And so there's just a lot of conflict that comes from this moment, from people's desire to glorify themselves over God. And so God provides immediately in chapter 12, God provides a solution. Can we go to the next slide? Okay, so first of all, this one. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give the desires of your heart. You know, oftentimes this passage is used to argue that God, if you want money and you like God, God will give you money. But that's not at all what this means. This means delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you what? What you delight in. The desire of your heart is the Lord, and He will give you that. See, the people at the Tower of Babel, they didn't delight in the Lord. They just wanted to use Him for their own gain. We should not have that attitude. It's a warning to us, right? But a good warning. But God provides the solution to the problem that He just created. I mean, obviously, we created it, but God responds by saying, look at this. He goes to Abram. Now, guess where Abram's from? The plain of Shinar, exactly where the Tower of Babel was. God goes to Abram. He says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your offspring. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So first of all, God goes to Abram and he tells him, I want you to go west. Okay, enough of this going east away from me stuff. Okay, I want you to go west. I think it's symbolic. But then when Abram goes there, the Lord appears to him. And this happens over and over. Matter of fact, Abram builds a bunch of altars. And so do his sons and his grandsons. They build all these altars to the Lord. And God keeps appearing to them. And he keeps making this promise. You know, he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And this one's crucial. And through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, Paul picks up on that through your offspring. And he says, by the way, guys, this is a singular. It's not through your offspring, plural. In English, we don't really have offsprings. That's not a word. But in their language, they did. And so he says, through your offspring, through your seed. And he says, that seed is Christ. Amen. So Paul says, by the way, that promise was given to Christ from the beginning. But we're not going to get too far into that. The beautiful thing is that God is working to solve the problem. He wants all nations to be blessed, primarily through his presence among them. Okay, so let's go to the next one. So we have the story of the Israelites in Genesis. And the whole time, they're still wanderers. They have no home. God says, I'm going to give you this land, but they don't have it yet. And they don't have a home. They live in tents. And they wander around, and they go through trials. There's a famine. So they all go to Egypt so that they can survive. Are you guys with me? There's, there's, a, there's a lot of wandering and building altars to the Lord, and the Lord appears to them, but he doesn't stick around. He leaves. 
and they're like, man, I wish he was back here again. <laughs> There's a sense of they're still under the curse. They still wander just like Cain, just like the people in Babel. And God wants them to have a home, and so he makes this promise. I'm going to give you this land. And then they're enslaved in Egypt. And for 400 years, 400 years, they are slaves in the land of Egypt. So not only do they not have a home, the place that they live doesn't like them or want them. It's just really not going well for them. And that whole time, what they're longing for is for God to rescue them and for God to be with them. And they're not experiencing that. So God finally, finally, after 400 years, comes down and he sends Moses and he rescues them out of Egypt. And, one of the, and, and what's fascinating about the book of Exodus, I believe it's actually one book with Genesis. They're actually one story. And they're intended to be read that way. See, in the ancient world, scrolls, Monty was actually talking about this this morning. Good point, Monty. Scrolls could only hold so much because otherwise they get ridiculously long. See, we have books and those are real nice. As a matter of fact, books probably proliferated because of the church because they wanted to read the Bible so bad. And so they made it easier by having a book instead of a scroll. But so you have these scrolls and they would get ridiculously long. So you have to divide them up. And, so, and then you have to assign a name. Like, okay, this is Genesis and this is Exodus. But they're really part of one story. And what you see at the end of the book of Exodus is God tells them to build a tabernacle. And he actually appears to Moses. Now get this. He appears to Moses and speaks to him seven times. Exactly like Genesis 1. Seven times God spoke and the world was created. Seven times God spoke and Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle. And actually, the pieces of the tabernacle, many of them represent the creation. Down to the very fabric with certain colors that looks like the sky. Things like that. It's pretty amazing. But here God, God uh, commands Moses to build it. And this is where you see the parallel really directly. It says, Moses saw all their work. And behold, just as the Lord had commanded, they had done it. And he blessed them. Now look what it says here. God saw who he made, and behold, it was very good, and God blessed them. It's the exact same formula. It's deliberate. Moses' work is mirroring God's creation. And then he says this, Moses completed the work. And it says the heaven and earth were completed, and God completed on the seventh day the work he had done. Next slide, please. This is what happens immediately after the tabernacle is finished. It sounds like day seven. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay, so God's glory comes down and enters this building because it was built with his instructions and his intention, so that he could dwell with his people. And this is such a beautiful picture, and this was what the Israelites were hoping for. Now, they, they continued to actually be unfaithful to God, despite having the tabernacle. And actually, if you think about it too, the tabernacle itself is not designed to be in one place. It actually wanders with them as they move around. But once they're settled in the land, God has them build a temple. Right? He has them build a temple, which is much more permanent. And so the Israelites might have thought, okay, the tabernacle is not quite the solution because we still have to wander. And then it's like, okay, well, now we're not wandering. We have the temple. Now, now we're good. Now it's fixed. But the glory of the Lord actually leaves the temple. See, when the temple was built and God's glory came into it, it uses almost the same terms. The priest could not enter because the glory of the Lord filled it. And all those things are almost directly quoted 
But then the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel 6, 7, 8, and 9 leaves. It's no longer there because of their sin. It's the exact same thing as what happened to Adam and Eve and everyone else before them. Their unfaithfulness to the covenant prompted God leaving. And so the Israelites are left hoping. They're hoping that God will come back. To this day, they still hope for that same thing, that God would come and his temple would be rebuilt and they could dwell in his presence. Matter of fact, they go to the, the only surviving wall of the temple. They go there and they pray all the time because that's what they want. That's their biggest hope. And that is the promise that God made, that he would dwell with his people and be their God. But God also wants all the nations to come into that, not just the Israelites. And that may be part of what they missed. Part of their sin was not being a light to the nations. Matter of fact, the reason God left was because they were making him look so bad by their conduct that it was actually making the nations not want to come and be a part of his worship. Okay, so let's go to the next slide. So how does this connect to Jesus? It's pretty incredible in John chapter 1 what happens. And this is a bold claim by the writer of John. But he says this. He says, I'm actually going to read a little bit of context. In verse 9, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so there's actually a number of Old Testament allusions right here. The first one is made his dwelling. Now, obviously, that's about God's presence. But if you don't read Greek, which is okay, I don't either, but I do take a look sometimes, you might miss the fact that the word for made his dwelling is tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. The Greek word is skenao. He tabernacled among us. And so he's saying, listen, that tabernacle where the presence of God was, it's actually Jesus. And he even says, we have seen his glory. Remember when God's glory came onto the tabernacle. It's the exact same word. And it's the exact intention. I want you to understand that all of that was pointing to Jesus. And he came full of grace and truth. So this one is a reference to Exodus chapter 33, where the Lord appears to Moses and says, the Lord, the Lord, full of compassion and mercy. That in the Greek... Those words are grace and truth. <laughs> the Lord has appeared full of grace and truth. And the result for Moses was a completely changed person. He was completely transformed. He came out and his face was shining. And Paul talks about this exact thing in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Moses had to veil his face because the light was too great for people to look at. And Moses didn't even see God fully. He saw his back. <laughs> Actually, it's hard to explain what the Hebrew really says there. Either his back or the space where God had previously been standing. That's what Moses saw. And that was enough to just be so glorious that people couldn't even look at his face. 
And now we have seen Jesus. And the Apostle John is wanting to emphasize, we have seen him face to face. God's presence is now among us directly. Okay, next passage. The temple. Jesus says this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. This temple took 46 years to build, and you are going to raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Then they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed the scriptures about what? About God's presence in the temple. And about that temple being destroyed, but raised up again. And that happened twice. Matter of fact, the, the, the temple that they're speaking of wasn't completed until about 30 years after Jesus died. And seven years later, it was demolished and has never been rebuilt. And so that temple was not the presence of God, and the Jews know it. They have known for a long time God's presence never entered that temple at all. And why? Well, Jesus was the presence of God in that temple. Jesus went to that temple at least twice, maybe three times, four times. And he did things that signified that he was over that temple. So anyways, I'm not going to get into that too much. But the point is, the tabernacle and the temple point to Jesus, the presence of God. And so what is the result of this for us? Next slide, please. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus uses some pretty loaded language here that I think we tend to miss. And this is a beautiful promise, but we tend to miss what it is. He says, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, where do we find rest? Only in the presence of God. Jesus is making a very audacious statement right there. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, when we wander over the earth looking for God's presence, Jesus says, come to me. I'm his presence. You will find rest for your souls. You know, when all those thoughts, all those worries, all those fears, all those sins hold you captive, there's only one place you can be made free, and that's with Jesus. Next slide, please. Now, here's something that I only realized recently, maybe a couple days ago. The Apostle Paul is appealing to people to come to God, and he makes this speech. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, right there. Creation, Genesis 1. Right? That's what he's talking about. He says, And does not live in temples built by human hands. He doesn't say he does not live in temples. Just not ones built by you. It's fascinating. And he is not served. Remember, the Babylonians and all those cultures, they believed that they served the gods by giving them what they needed. Here's your food. Here's your drink. Here's your bed. Come be with us. It'll be nice. And Paul says, no, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. As if. Like, what, are you guys joking? As if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, now we're talking about Adam, that they should inhabit the whole earth. At what point did they begin to inhabit the whole earth? When God scattered them at the Tower of Babel. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Again, they're separated. They're not together anymore. But why? God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So whether or not he's directly referencing the Tower of Babel, all these ideas are connected to that one theme of God scattering the nations and putting them in different places with different languages so that they would realize their need for him and come to him. So that they would no longer exalt themselves. You know, a lot of the challenges in our lives, maybe they're just the result of sin, but sometimes they're the result of God trying to send us a message. Stop wandering and come to me and find rest. Some of you maybe do not follow God or even believe in him. God is calling you, hey, I've done all this so that you can be with me. So that we can be one people and worship God at his temple, which is Jesus. You know, in Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down. And it's a, a sound of wind and fire. And it fills up the people, right? And, they, and that is often described because what's the next thing they do? They speak all the languages that they don't know. Meaning what? Babel has been reversed and God's presence is with these people. Paul says that we are God's temple. God has made his dwelling among us. And a lot of times we think about what we've been saved from, right? We think about sin and death and we think, I don't want anything to do with that. And we think about what we've been saved from. But what about what we've been saved to? We've been saved to the presence of God. Do you enjoy God's presence? Do you find rest in his word? If you don't, I'm not condemning you. That's something you should consider. What is in my heart that prevents me from doing that? What motive do I have that prevents me from really reaching that rest? And that was something that God was showing me on my retreat. Hey, you know what? You have too many thoughts that are about you and about your problems. <laughs> and you need to stop thinking and be still and know that I am God. And so this is the time when we take communion. And I want you to think about what Jesus said. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Jesus' body was the temple. And when he was destroyed, so to speak, killed, right? Remember, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, signifying that we could enter God's presence freely through Jesus. Matter of fact, uh, they read from Hebrews that we have this hope behind the veil. That's what he's talking about. This anchor for our soul is the ability to enter God's presence through Jesus. And we've been incredibly blessed as a family to enjoy that presence. So as we take communion, I want you to consider what Jesus suffered so that you could be in God's presence. Amen? Let us pray. Dear Lord, dear Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for the, the riches of your word. Lord, there's so much more that could be said about what all this means and, and, and how it impacts us. But we just want to thank you, Lord, during this time for the sacrifice of Jesus to bring us into your presence and to have the peace and the joy that comes from that and to go out and share our faith, knowing that God desires all people to be saved, all people to come into his presence, Lord. We know that. And so we want to have the courage to preach that and teach that, Lord. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.